0: Greg said, my family, uh, we moved up here in July from North Carolina. We spent the last seven years doing campus ministry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I was able to check right before I came in here, the Tar Heels won their second round basketball game. It's not as big a deal up here. That would have been cheers uh, back in North Carolina. Thank you. Exciting stuff. and so, yeah, seven years in campus ministry, wanted to, to have a period set aside for study, and so we're here. And we, we were part of a sister church uh, in North Carolina called Kings Park, which I believe one or two of you may have actually been to. Nate is shaking, nodding his head. Campus Harvest Conference before it went regional. Used to meet in Durham, North Carolina, and people traveled from all over the world, and it was right in my backyard. So it was a real privilege to be there. But we were so grateful when we moved up here that we knew we would have a church family. And we felt so embraced and so loved by many of you guys when we first got here. And so we we just really appreciate that. And if we haven't had the opportunity to meet you, we look forward to that. Like Greg said, I've been studying more than I ever have in my life. But I hope to meet many more of you in the the months to come. I've got a picture of my wife here. I think this was right before our our first kiss. We just celebrated our five-year anniversary on March 10th. And God was really sweet to us. We were able to celebrate twice that day, had two babysitters. It was a really, really great time. And uh, she's a really amazing woman, as many of you guys already know who have met her. And she just constantly models for me what we're gonna talk about tonight, just pushing out of her comfort zone and trusting God. And so I really appreciate that. I love you. And I've also got a picture of uh, two of our kids, Isaiah and Jubilee. It's my white son and my Chinese daughter amazing what comes out Um. (laughs) but uh Isaiah just turned two on uh, March 3rd so we've been busy celebrating a lot of good things in our family I think it's interesting the circumstances surrounding Isaiah's birth I think really illustrate his name Isaiah means Yahweh saves and so the day he was born was pretty uneventful it actually felt much more relaxing than the first time around I don't know how many of you fathers out there, but the first time when Jubilee was born, I just had no idea what to expect. It was a pretty nerve wracking day. But this time around, I felt like I knew what to expect. And my parents had Jubilee for the day. And so we had planned to go on a date that night. And so when Grace started having contractions, we just thought, you know what, let's go for it. So we went to our favorite burger spot, Bull City Burger and Brewery, and we had a nice dinner. And then every few minutes, Grace would have a a contraction And so she'd pause, and then we would continue eating. (laughs) And then we went back to our house, uh, laid down, just worshiped for a little bit, and then we went to a birth center that was close by. And it wasn't too long after we arrived that Grace reached the pushing stage. And before I knew it, the the midwife said, hey, Grace, I think the baby's ready to come out. This next push, she's going to come. And I remember thinking, how does she know that? Like, that seems pretty fast, but I was like, okay, she's been doing this a while, I'll trust her. So sure enough, the next push, Isaiah comes out, and the first thing I see is the umbilical cord wrapped once or twice around his neck, and his head is just purple, and my heart just sunk, and maybe, you know, Nate, Nate's smiling at me right now, maybe that's really common, but I just thought, oh no, that can't be good, but then just with a couple flicks of her finger, she, she moved the umbilical cord off of his neck, and he was fine. And I didn't even connect it until a couple years later that that midwife actually was able to discern something was going on in the womb and that isaiah was in distress and he needed to be delivered in that moment so that he could be delivered from his distress or something bad might have happened and i feel like that's such a good picture greg was telling us last week that one of the most common pictures for salvation in the bible is deliverance and that midwife had the desire and the ability to deliver Isaiah in that moment and I feel like that's God's heart for us. He has the desire and the ability to deliver us. But We've been going through the book of Isaiah in the last few weeks as many of you know even though that's God's heart so often the people of God and so often myself so often we turn to other gods to other people and to other things instead of trusting him to deliver us from our circumstances and so we're going to we're going to be looking at uh, Isaiah 36 through 39 tonight. This is a really fascinating passage. It stands in the middle of the book of Isaiah and the first half, chapters one through 35, covers the the period where Israel is uh, under threat from the the Assyrian empire. And the second half of the book, which we're gonna look at in the weeks to come, focuses more on the Babylonian period, which is a couple hundred years later. But in the middle stands four chapters of narrative. And I'll have to double check this, but this this set of historical events that we're gonna take a look at might be, other than the life of Jesus, the most attested historical event in the Bible. In other words, the Bible gives more space to this event, the telling of this event, than maybe anything else other than the life of Jesus. And you can look in parallel uh, chapters in 2 Kings, I believe 18 through 20 in 2 Chronicles, Second Chronicles 32, which also cover these events. And so we're going to take a look um, at this text, and it describes the Syrian army coming up to the gates of Jerusalem and basically threatening to, de- to demolish the city. And it's a, it's a crisis. And not many of us, I don't believe, we're, we're under threat at the moment of invasion from a foreign nation, at least not that I'm aware of. But there are crises going on all over the world. Christians in particular are being persecuted all over the world at this moment. And we're fortunate where we are in this, in this place, that's not our reality, but it, but it could be. But for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, that, that is their reality. And in this, the second portion of this narrative, we're gonna look at a personal crisis where Hezekiah has uh, an illness that comes up and he gets told that he's gonna die And I think many of us can relate to personal crises in our own life. Probably every single person in this room is either facing something themselves or you know somebody that you care about who's facing something significant right now. And where is God in the middle of these situations? What is he doing and how are we to respond? And that's what we want to look at tonight. And so we're going to begin by reading the text and we're going to look at at quite a, a few portions of scripture here to try and get an idea of the overall narrative And then briefly, we're going to draw out some implications. Where is God in the midst of these things? In the midst of national crises, in the midst of your personal crises? And then finally, just and briefly, in light of who God is and what he is doing, how are we to respond? And so I want to ask you to pray with me. This is a a prayer adapted from uh, Hezekiah as we get started. Lord Almighty Enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that your people are oppressed in all lands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Amen. But right before we jump into our text, I wanted to point you guys to a couple of resources. How, I don't know how many of you guys have been reading through Isaiah as we've been going along. I actually just started a couple of weeks ago as I was preparing for this sermon. But I found this actually not the easiest book to understand. I don't know if anybody else felt that way as well. But this is a picture of something called the Bible, the Bible Project. Have any of you guys been able to check this out? Yeah? These are pretty amazing. They're videos that break down the major themes and components of every book in the Bible. And there's links to them in the emails that get sent out every week. And if you don't receive those emails, you can just go to www.jointhebibleproject.com. These are amazing. Just to give you a, a big picture of what's going on in each book of the Bible, I'd highly recommend it. And then second, if you would like some more detailed study, if there was one resource that I would recommend that you purchase, it would probably be the ESV Study Bible. I found that it's, it's more accessible than most commentaries, but it's still very substantial in giving you cultural and historical background. It was really helpful for me while I was preparing just to figure out what was going on. And Greg, I think I actually left my, my hard copy of it at your house when we moved out, so I need to look for that at some point. But let's, let's go ahead and jump into our, our text. We're gonna be looking at a, f- a few passages and I'll comment on them briefly we'll start in Isaiah 36. If you if you have a Bible, we're in Isaiah 36:1 1, 1 and 2 to start or you can just follow here on the screens. And I've I'll be cutting out certain portions. So, um, you can just follow along on the screen. It says in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, King of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the King of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And so the Assyrian the empire is the most powerful empire in the world and they've come and Sennacherib's historical records indicate that he had captured 46 cities within Israel. So they're on their way and this city of Lachish was just 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It was the second most important city in Israel and I've, I've got a, a picture here. This is really interesting. This was this is a piece of artwork that was found in Sennacherib's palace showing Israelite exiles being taken out of the city of Lachish. And so why why do I show you this? I think sometimes for me it's really easy when I read the Bible to be like oh yeah that's a nice story in the Bible. But I, I forget sometimes these were real people. Like these were real events and this army is coming just outside the gates of Jerusalem, and they've seen half their nation already taken into exile. They've seen the closest city just next to them, just down in Richmond. Imagine a big army has just taken over Richmond, and they're right here at the city gates. And they've got this choice, this coming before them. They can either do what they know is right and trust in God, or they can look at their circumstances which are telling them something vastly different. Hey, maybe we should surrender and trust in these Assyrians. How many of you have ever felt that way? You know in your mind that you should trust God, but often our circumstances and our feelings and the culture is telling us something else, and it feels very tempting to trust in those things. So we're going to continue in the story here. It says, The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, This is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? This is the key question that we're gonna be exploring tonight. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? And so the Israelites, like many of the surrounding nations, have been subjected to the Assyrian empire, and they were forced to pay tribute or taxes. And during a switch in the leadership in Assyria, It was common for some of these vassal states to rebel, and King Hezekiah was one of them. And he decided, I don't wanna pay these taxes anymore. And so the Assyrian king didn't like this, and so he's sending out his armies to crush this rebellion. How many of you guys have noticed that when you start trying to follow God and you decide that you're gonna stop following the culture or stop following some ungodly influence, you meet opposition? Yeah, and we we find this here. He says, look, I know you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. So this is an interesting metaphor here. Most of us, you see a, a staff is to support us while we're walking. But here it says, and so Egypt is being compared to the staff. Anyone who places his hand on it has his hand pierced. So instead of being supported, they're actually being wounded. And what he's saying is that you're you're putting your hope in Egypt to protect you militarily, but this is actually going to backfire and it's going to hurt you. And it's interesting. This is coming through the mouth of an enemy, but it was actually Isaiah's message to the people of God all throughout the book of Isaiah. You see it all throughout the, the 30s, chapter 30 through 35. Over and over, God says, Don't put your trust in Egypt. Don't put your trust in Egypt. And it's amazing, the whole story of the Bible is the people of Israel being led out of slavery in Egypt and constantly being tempted to put their trust back in Egypt. You see, as soon as the exodus happens, they don't have food or water in the desert. I mean, that's, that's a big problem. I can empathize with that. But instead of putting their hope in God to provide for them, they complain to Moses. They say, oh, if only we could go back to Egypt where we had all the meat that we could eat. I don't know about that maybe that was the case I, i'm not sure if that if that was actually true or not but it's amazing how our memory can deceive us and we will willingly submit to old slave masters and old old patterns instead of trusting god in new contexts we'll willingly submit to, to forms of slavery that we're familiar with instead of trusting god in a new situation and so here israel is being tempted with that again And he goes on, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. And so he's trying to undermine trust, the people's trust in King Hezekiah. He's trying to undermine their trust in God. He says, no, trust in me. It's pretty crazy. Here's a foreign army coming to invade your city, and they want to take you into exile. But this offer might have actually been pretty tempting. Your, your city is about to get wiped out. Uh, if you're a leader, you'll probably be killed if you don't surrender. And so it's a, potentially for some attempting offer. He goes on, have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? And the implicit answer is no. Assyria is taking over everybody. Who of all the gods of these in- These countries have been able to save their lands from me. How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? And so if you were to study these passages a little more uh, in depth, I cut out a, a few verses here, you'll see that over and over again, the words trust and deliverance keep coming up over and over again. And God is saying, trust in me, trust in me, I will deliver you. And the king of Assyria is saying, no, trust in me, I'll deliver in you. I, w- I will deliver you. And so the Syrians are trying to undermine the Israelites' trust in God to deliver them. So we continue in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 37. We see Hezekiah's response. So to this point, the Syrian king's messengers have just been speaking to uh, some of Hezekiah's servants and to the people. But now the message comes to King Hezekiah himself, and we see how he responds. It says, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priest, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah. This tearing of clothes and wearing of sackcloth is just a sign of mourning and of repentance. And maybe here he's acknowledging, we have put our trust in Egypt and we need to repent. And so the officials go to Isaiah and Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. I think this is what we need to hear when we're being tempted by circumstances that seem too great for us, that would undermine our trust in God. Do not be afraid. And it wasn't that Hezekiah immediately did something to try and save himself, which I think is, is normally my immediate response. Oh, something's stressing me out. I need to fix this right now. But he, he waited on God And here's God speaking into the situation. Do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. So remember that last, that verse there. We're going to come back to that. And so Hezekiah receives this word from Isaiah. And he prayed to the Lord, and this is, this is the prayer that I, I opened us up with, Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words of Sennac, all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Syrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. And so Hezekiah is acknowledging the reality here. This isn't just some pie-in-the-sky thing. Like, these people are invading and taking over peoples everywhere. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hands so that all the kings of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. And so here Hezekiah isn't making an appeal to his own faithfulness. He's not even making an appeal to the saving of the city. But what what he's really saying here is, these people have blasphemed your name. Vindicate yourself. Vindicate your reputation. I'm trusting in you right now, and I'm asking you to vindicate yourself as a deliverer on our behalf, because that's who you said you are. And it's amazing what we see is the ultimate conclusion to this first narrative. It says, then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Syrian camp. And so there's, there's historians, independent historians outside of the Bible who have acknowledged that something happened. They argue over whether it was a plague in the army or, or whatever, they don't know what happened. But what they do know is that Jerusalem wasn't conquered. And it says, further, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He actually never initiated another campaign into Jerusalem after that. It's astounding. 185,000 people just overnight. Something happened to them, and he has to, they have to withdraw. God is faithful. And so it says, the king returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And one day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, His sons killed him with the sword. This is an interesting contrast. You've got the most powerful army in the world coming to your city saying, hey, we're going to destroy you if you don't surrender. And God says, do not be afraid. I'm going to deliver you. And he delivers them. as the most powerful army in the world. And here is Sennacherib worshiping in the temple of his God. And his God is not even able to deliver him from his own sons who kill him. And here's the point, Yahweh is the only true God, and he's trustworthy, and he will deliver. Yes. So now we're going we're gonna to turn to our second narrative in Isaiah 38. And It says, in those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. In those days, as we'll see later in, in verse 6, commentators seem to think that these events that we're about to, to look into actually happened before the Assyrian army was turned away. So it's happening roughly in the same period of time. It says, the prophet Isaiah went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, put your house in order because you are going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, remember Lord how I've walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Here we see Isaiah facing a personal crisis before it was a a transnational crisis and here he's confronted with a, a prophecy I don't really know if you could call it prophecy it's supposed to be encouraging but here he's presented with the word of the Lord saying that he's about to die and he needs to get his house in order but actually what's what's really significant about this is he's not just any man but he's the king in the line of David and if he dies and we if you study the context he actually doesn't have a son yet And if he dies here without an heir, then maybe God isn't faithful to his promise to David to have a king on the throne forever. And so for us, maybe we're not kings and maybe a covenant promise isn't riding on our having children. But I I think what I take from this is every decision we make and our actions in our life don't just affect us. They affect all the people around us. And I think we, we deceive ourselves sometimes thinking, oh, this is, this is only just going to affect me. No, our decisions actually will affect generations of people. And God will honor the dignity of our decisions. And so I think Hezekiah realizes this. The people haven't been delivered yet. He doesn't have a son. There's no heir to the throne. And so he prays, God, deliver me. And again, it says, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and tell Hezekiah, "This is what the Lord, the God of our father David, says: I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add fifteen years to your life, and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city." So this is the verse here that makes commentators think that these events have happened before the Syrian army is turned away, and it just makes me think: you don't just wake up one day and have an army right outside your window and just spontaneously trusting God, at least not most of us. And I think it's built up relationship with God, just like any relationship, trust is established over time. And maybe this incident where God heals him was one such incident in Hezekiah's life that helped him to trust God when the stakes were even higher at a later moment. And finally, we wanna take a look at one last narrative. How are you guys doing? I know this is a a lot of text we've got one last narrative we're going to look at. And it's, it's really interesting. Hezekiah is a really ambiguous character. He's actually set up, uh, if you look how, how the, the book of Isaiah is arranged, he's in, intentionally con- contrasted with his father Ahaz as perhaps the most righteous king in Israel's history other than King David. But this ends, I don't know, he's just biggest figure, so let's jump into it. It says, At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdoms that Hezekiah did not show them. So the Babylonians were another empire. That were on the rise, who are also trying to rebel against the Assyrians, and potentially what people think is going on here is that they're trying to scout out potential allies, and so they're they're going to Hezekiah. They heard he was sick, and they're bringing gifts, and maybe they're trying to scout out could these Israelites help us overthrow the Babylonians. And here Hezekiah potentially it's it's not very clear, but some people will interpret this that. Uh, He's potentially open to this, and just as he had looked to Egypt before, maybe here he's trying to form another alliance to protect his nation. And Isaiah says to him, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left to you, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So that's kind of a sober ending. Hezekiah has trusted God, and he's seen his own life extended. He trusted God, and he saw the city of Jerusalem delivered from a massive army. And yet here we're left at the very end with a declaration that his descendants will still go into exile one day, that they actually weren't quite delivered yet. And we see here that, that Hezekiah, no matter how much he trusted in God, he still had his moments of weakness. And I don't think it would be fair, to, fair at all to say that the Babylonian exile occurred because of this one event. But he, like the people, he contributed to this pattern over and over again of not trusting in God. And here were the consequences that they were going to face. And so what are, the, what are the, the implications of this story? I know that was a lot of material. These next two sections are going to be more brief. I think the first, and just thinking about this, we, we still have crises today. We know that God is faithful. We saw it in certain situations, but in others, we don't always see it. Why is that? I, I think these are some of the potential obstacles that we face. I think the first, I, I made this uh, note at the end, so I don't think there's a slide for it. The first is that we trust in Hezekiahs ourselves, and we're disappointed. We look to godly men and women in the church, we look to political leaders, and sometimes they let us down, and that hurts. We wonder, God, how can this be happening right now? But maybe our, our ultimate trust was in a person and not God himself. And it's, it's not wrong to put our trust in people. We're actually to entrust our our, ourselves to people, and we're to pray for our leaders, but we're going to be disappointed if our ultimate trust is in another person to deliver us. I think second, we find that sometimes we are, we are Hezekiahs ourselves. Sometimes we're faithful and we trust God and we see him deliver us. And sometimes we're not. And some of us even have a reputation of being really godly people who trust in God. But then there are other moments where we see that we really don't trust him. And we see that like Hezekiah, sometimes we're able to trust God and see deliverance, but sometimes we can't even deliver ourselves or the people who are closest to us. And all of these situations, and many, many, I know many in here are facing sickness in our own bodies. Many of us have loved ones who've turned away from the Lord. And what are we, what are we to do? How are we, how are we to respond to these things? I think if the story ended here, it'd be a pretty sad story. I think we can all empathize with these kind of things. God, where are you? I wanna trust in you, but I'm not seeing your deliverance in this moment. And fortunately for us, the story didn't end there, but despite the lack of faithfulness of the people, God was still faithful to his promise with David to raise up an heir, to raise up a new king. And even when he was wildly successful, with his ministry, and people wanted to declare him the new king, he refused. He trusted in his father, and his father said, not yet, son. And even when he struggled with accusation and hardship, there were, there were rumors that his birth was Ill- illegitimate. And in our society, that doesn't really mean that much. But in the culture at that time, the charge of being a bastard was a, was a huge, hugely offensive and shaming thing. His own family thought he was crazy. His disciples abandoned him and he died the most humiliating death possible. And the Roman Empire to be crucified on the cross was the most humiliating kind of death. And theologically for the Jews, dying on a tree, dying on a cross was a sign that God had cursed you and abandoned you. Just ultimate shame. And yet through it all, this new king trusted in God and because of that, he, he's trustworthy to deliver us. Jesus is a better king. We may put our trust in Hezekiah's, we may find that we're like Hezekiah ourselves, but we have a, a new king, Jesus, who can lead us. And so I just want to close with, with two quick thoughts. One is repentance. I think we as a, a corporate community and as individuals, um, often, really, this isn't just a one-time thing, but together, need to to remind ourselves of who our our trust is in and and repent when we're placing our trust in other gods and other false promises that really won't deliver. And then finally, faith. And I want to nuance this. This is a slight nuance, but I think it's really important. Our faith isn't in our own ability to follow Jesus. It's not the same thing over again. Our faith isn't And a new Hezekiah's ability to follow God, but our faith is in Jesus's ability to lead us as our new King. It's not about how much I can trust Him. It's His ability to lead us, and He is faithful to to deliver us not only from our enemies and our circumstances, but actually from our very selves, our autonomous, rebellious selves. And when we find that we're not trusting in Him, instead of getting down on ourselves, oh. I'm not trusting in God. We can just repent and just turn away and entrust ourselves to the one who desires to lead us and deliver us. Amen.